Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 18 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Sandra Flack is the co-founder and executive director of Justice for Orphans, a nonprofit ministry on a mission to rally the church to serve children and families in crisis. For seven years, she has hosted the weekly Orphans No More podcast, where she seeks to inspire, educate, and encourage foster and adoptive parents and many others through guest interviews and inspirational content. She also serves as the area director for the Care Portal throughout New York State. Sandra lives in upstate New York with her husband of 33 years. They are the proud parents of eight children, five of whom through adoption. I'm so excited to have Sandra on today's episode of FASD Hope, especially since November is Adoption Awareness Month. Psalm 10, verses 17 and 18. Lord, you know the hopes of the helpless. Surely you will hear their cries and comfort them. You will bring justice to the orphans and to the oppressed, so mere people can no longer terrify them. That scripture verse was given to me by my dear friend and colleague, Sandra Flack of Justice for Orphans, whom I'm thrilled to be talking to today. Sandra, welcome to FASD Hope. Oh, Natalie, I'm thrilled to be here too. So Sandra not only runs Justice for Orphans, which is a nonprofit organization in the um, Albany uh, capital area of New York, uh, but Sandra also has a wonderful podcast called Orphans No More, which I was actually a guest on twice, uh, once in 2015 when we had just brought home our daughter, talking about open adoption and our blessed journey uh, with her adoption. And then again, I want to say it was about two years ago, maybe a little more than two years ago, about FASD and about our just learning about FASD and our experiences and, you know, how FASD impacts both the foster and adoptive communities. Now, of course, in this lovely circle that that the Lord has brought us through, Sandra is my guest today, and we have so much to talk about today. Uh, So Sandra... Thank you for being on FASD Hope. And can you please just share a little bit of your journey into parenthood, adoption, and ultimately FASD? I'd love to. My husband and I have three biological children who are all grown up now and uh, two of them are married and out of the house. And then suddenly in 1999, when our youngest at the time was three, Uh, We welcomed into our home an eight-year-old girl who was a relative of mine. We didn't have adoption on our radar at all, but this little girl's mom had passed away. She didn't have a dad in the picture. She was being raised by um, an elderly, mentally unstable grandmother. We'd been reaching out and trying to help them both. And, um, you know, one thing led to another and very miraculously, the Lord set this little girl and our family. Um, and, you know, our mindset at the time was, well, now she has parents, she has a family and we're all going to live happily ever after. 
it didn't exactly play out that way. Um, we didn't know anything about trauma. We didn't know anything about FASD. We didn't, we just, we didn't know anything about anything, right? We just were parents to biological children and that was working and we thought we knew, you know, what we were doing. And as time went on and she adjusted and we were just living life, um, eventually the Lord put on our hearts to adopt internationally. So in January of 2007, we brought home a sibling group of three from Ukraine. Uh, their ages at the time were nine, seven, and three. And before I came home, I was in Ukraine six weeks, before I came home with the three of them, we discovered there was a fourth and youngest sibling who was in the orphanage. He was a year old, uh, but he wasn't yet available for adoption. Parental rights have not had not been terminated and all of that. And so we just sort of had to keep him in our hearts and pray for him and just, you know, watch and see what the Lord would do with the whole thing. Prior to traveling to Eastern Europe to adopt, I did my research uh, and, you know, I was reading books on attachment. I read some articles about FASD, um, figuring, well, that could happen, you know, that's likely if it's Eastern Europe, but we'll see, uh, just to try to, you know, cover all the bases so we had somewhat of an idea what to expect. And somehow, miraculously, the, the first three we brought home, they really clicked into our family without much of a speed bump. They really, there were tiny little things. There was a language barrier in the beginning, but no major behaviors. So we just thought, wow, we really know what we're doing with this adoptive parenting thing. Um, and then three years later in 2010, we were finally able to go back and adopt the youngest child who by that time, he was actually had just turned five when we arrived in Ukraine to bring him home. And the moment they uh, brought us in for a visit with him, my husband and I looked at each other and said, what are we going to do with this child? He was, you know, like that wild little animal, like the, like a little, that little silver ball in pinball, bing, 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 all over the room. Um, we knew we were not prepared. We were not equipped to parent this child. He'd been in the orphanage for the first five years of his life. Um, so he was really our introduction to FASD and trauma. Um, so we got home with him and just trying to survive Slava, his name is Slava. We kept his name Slava because in Ukrainian Slava means glory. And uh, so we kept his name and we were just trying to survive. And, and within that first six months of being home, I discovered the Connected Child book by Dr. Karen Purvis and Dr. David Cross. And uh, many of your listeners are probably familiar with that book. It was a lifesaver. Um, I read the book and started applying as much as I could because we really didn't understand trauma. We hadn't really, you know, it wasn't screaming in our face until this little guy came home. So just trying to learn new tools and, and, and learn how are we going to help him, uh, we knew we needed help helping him. So uh, from there, we watched some DVDs that Dr. Purvis had, had produced through Texas Christian University. Um, eventually, the following year, went to uh, we went from New York to Nashville for a, an Empower to Connect 
conference. So we got to sit under in two, in two days, we sat under <laughs> Dr. Purvis's teaching um, and it was like drinking from a fire hose, but we came home like, okay, because she talked about FASD and our eyes were open to, you know, these behaviors that we're dealing with are symptoms of really what is going on here between the trauma being institutionalized for the first five years of his life, um, you know, abandonment, neglect, all of those things, but especially FASD. So um, we sought out a counselor, a social worker actually, who is a believer, um, who specializes in attachment. Um, and I went to see her with our little guy and we I had several visits with her and she agreed completely about, yes, I agree that he, he, there's probably FASD going on here. Um, and he also, I also learned about sensory processing, which is something I did not really know before. Um, he's sensory seeking. Uh, so we were dealing with lots of stuff, you know, there he would come, he had no attention span for TV or anything. Um, he would come running into our living room and, you know, dive onto the couch and sit upside down on the couch with his legs in the air. And he'd last, you know, two or three minutes. And I would be just so grateful that I don't care that he's on his head. He was still for three minutes. That's, you know, that's three minutes I can sit still. So it was, you know, those kinds of things that we were trying to figure out what is going on. Um, so that, that social worker suggested that we get him diagnosed by a developmental pediatrician, which is not a pediatrician that he would continue to see because we had a family pediatrician, but a pediatrician who um, specialized in, um, you know, developmental issues. And it was him who would do the initial, you know, the diagnosis. So we saw the developmental pediatrician and he got the diagnosis of FASD. Um, and then the, the, when we brought the first three kids home, the youngest one at the time, and there's two years difference and these are, the kids are biological siblings. We brought him in and although he was a little bit older, uh, we said, you know what? We're thinking there's some things going on with this guy that you know, probably is the same thing. And sure enough, he got diagnosed with FASD as well. So once we knew what we were dealing with, it became, you know, we were able to really begin to advocate for our kids and educate ourselves and understand, you know, reading books and learning and, um, you know, Dr. Purvis and the Empower to Connect uh, folks, that was the best teaching that we were getting at the time, because I remember sitting in an Empower to Connect um, virtual conference when they were doing them, you know, online. And I remember Dr. Purvis saying, she talked about FASD and essentially there that's, you know, your child has brain damage. And is as startling as that was the way she phrased it, it was liberating to me because then I realized, okay, that is what we're dealing with. And, and if a child has a disability where, you know, they're, 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 they have spina bifida or they're, you know, they can't walk and they're in a wheelchair, you know, there are things that we obviously don't expect them to be able to do, you know, and they're going to need some help and assistance and supports and some guidance. And we're going to modify our home and our house and our family and everything that we do to accommodate that disability, but with FASD, it's not necessarily a visible disability. Oftentimes it's not, but we needed to make those very similar accommodations 
for our child. There's ways that we were going to have to parent differently. There's, you know, ways that we get ready for school in the morning that are different. Um, you know, so it's been a journey. And, you know, we're, we, my husband and I along the way became empowered to connect parent trainers um, so that we had the certification to teach other foster and adoptive parents um, that whole new set of parenting tools that Dr. Uh, Purvis teaches through, um, or used to teach, she's, she's deceased now, but trust-based relational intervention. And that made a huge difference in our kids. And then the more education we got about FASD, the more we kind of looked back at some of our other kids. And although they presented differently, um, and Natalie, I know that you know, FASD does not look the same in every child. Um, and so we could kind of pick out little things out of each of our kids that, you know, were, were most likely you know, maybe not as severe. For us, we just kind of realized that with our four Ukrainian kids, they have the same biological mother. Um, the first two were abandoned um, when they had been with the parents, but they had been found alone and abandoned because the parents, um, our court documents actually say that the parents were abusing alcoholic drinks. <laughs> that, and you know, translated from, from Ukrainian, that's what it said. The children were placed in an orphanage and then the younger two children, the mom gave birth at the hospital and abandoned them there. But to us, it just makes sense that as time went on, she drank alcohol more prevalently. So the youngest had the most exposure in the womb. So, um, you know, he, it just seems that he, you know, has more symptoms. It's a more extreme case with him. Um, but we just, you know, wanted to advocate for parents and, and, and give parents the same hope and, uh, you know, hope for healing and, and tools to parent. So we went that route and we became empowered to connect parent trainers. And Sandra, listening to your story and knowing you for as long as I've known you, even though, you know, we, we don't see each other a lot. I think we've like met in person a couple of times, but knowing your story and knowing your family, I am just so amazed how much you have learned and given back to the adoptive community and to the foster care community um, because you were uh, also undertaking the this group of siblings that all had different needs and all had you know different medical challenges and whatnot or actually as a product of the FASD diagnoses that that each of one of them had and you know I, I did not know that when we first met you know it was so amazing so just hearing your story just just amazes me and hearing about what you and your husband did to, to begin you know, the tools. And that is a wonderful book. I have it. I've read it. Um, it. It is a fantastic resource. So how did that lead? How did your lived experience lead to your developing Justice for Orphans? Oh, good question. So after our, we brought the, our youngest son home, uh, I heard about Orphan Sunday, you know, and that's a um, it's the second Sunday of November every year, and it's a time for the church to come together and churches all across the country and around the world actually observe a day where um, they pray for orphans, pray for adoptive families, foster kids, foster parents, um, just to really um, in one, one voice come together and stand for vulnerable children. So I had heard about it. 
Uh, the church we attended at the time, the pastor and his wife had also adopted children. They had been foster parents. So I just asked our pastor to to do Orphan Sunday. I figured, well, he, he talks about adoption all the time. I'm sure he will. But what I didn't expect him to do was say, okay, you do it. Um, so him, his wife and I put together that very first Orphan Sunday, and it was from praying and researching the scriptures and the statistics about adoption or about orphans and about foster care. The more I learned, the more wrecked I became because we entered, you know, the whole adoption journey because God said we didn't, it wasn't that we went and did a bunch of research and said, oh, there's, you know, there's 134 million kids in the world that are orphaned. We need to go adopt some. We just knew that this is what God put on our heart for whatever reason. We, we didn't really, we just stepped out in faith. Um, but when I began to learn about the number of children, you know, who are orphaned worldwide, the number of children who are in the American foster care system, I began to, you know, think who's doing something about this and who's talking about it because I'm an adoptive mom. I've been in orphanages now overseas. And if I didn't know all of this was going on in the world or in our country, then the average person sitting next to me in church doesn't know. Everybody needs to know because according to the scriptures, we're supposed to care. We're supposed to advocate for the orphan and the least of these and the vulnerable. So that just, you know, really opened, God used that to open the door. Um, and I just began to speak about it everywhere I went. And then eventually um, after a, a conference that we went to, the um, Mary and I, the pastor's wife, went that following year to a Christian Alliance for Orphans Summit um, and came home even more fired up and even more determined to do something. And we hosted our very first conference at our church where we invited everybody, you know, in the community and people from other churches to come and learn more about adoption and foster care. And that's how Justice for Orphans was birthed. It was started off sort of as a little ministry in a local church, but God made it very clear early on that it wasn't just to stay in our one church, um, because almost at the same time we launched, I got invited to be a guest on a local Christian radio station, um, which I was terrified to do because public speaking was not anything I was really able to, you know, I felt very ill-equipped. Um, terrified. And this was a one hour live show where I would be the only guest. And I was terrified, but the Lord kept, you know, really tapping me on the shoulder because I kept trying to get out of it and kept trying to say no. And the Lord was like, mm -mm, this, you're doing this. I'm opening this door. So I did it. I felt like, okay, good. I survived. I never have to do it again. Uh, and then a couple of months later, I got asked to be back on the show. And then I got interviewed by another Christian station in our area. And one thing led to another. And that very first show I had been on, that station contacted me and said, we think you should have your own radio show where you talk about adoption and foster care and everything related to it. And what, you know, and you can in your interview your own guests. And, and I just was like, what is going on? Because I have no you know, I don't have a degree in communications or broadcasting or English. I'm a stay-at-home homeschooling mom of eight kids. Like, what do I know? But yet we knew we had just launched Justice for Orphans. Our mission was to rally the church for the fatherless, for the vulnerable, for the orphan, the oppressed, the foster child. So what better way to do that than on Christian radio? So 
Um, you know, I would speak in churches. We continue to do a, a, an annual conference um, and we had the radio show for a number of years. And then, a, you know, a few years back when podcasts sort of became, you know, all the rage, um, we packaged each radio show into the, a podcast and started having it out as a podcast. Um, and then a little over a year ago, our Christian talk radio station was bought out by um, a station that's going, that's, is doing music. So all of us with talk shows had to find different homes. Um, and we just decided, you know what, we're getting such great traction with our podcast. We don't really feel the need to pay for airtime on another station. Um, you know, we're just, we have such a great base of listeners just through our podcast. So, um, so now we're just, just a podcast, um, but it's much more convenient for our listeners to find us because you can listen, as you know, to a podcast anytime. Um, so we do, we do the podcast uh, and then, um, you know, we're, we do a lot of advocacy work, bringing a lot of awareness um, we still would host the uh, Empower to Connect conference. We would, my husband and I would teach um, a nine-week course once a year for local foster and adoptive families. We were doing that. Um, but then we also had a heart to really be hands-on, boots on the ground with children and families in crisis in our community. Um, and just praying about how we were going to do that, what we were going to do. I would speak at churches all the time. And afterwards, people would approach me and say, hey, um, you know, I don't really know if I could foster or adopt, but how can I help if I can't do, if I can't foster, if I can't adopt? Because those are big asks, right? That's a big ask. Not everybody is called to do that, but we are all called to care in some way. Um, so as we prayed about what we could do to be boots on the ground, we found out about Care Portal. So two years ago, we implemented Care Portal. And it's really, Care Portal is a technology platform for any of your listeners who might not know. Um, it's in about 21 states nationwide, a little bit in Canada. Um, and it's a technology platform that connects child welfare agencies um, with local churches. So very super simple example is a caseworker working with a family in crisis, um, maybe wanting to try to strengthen that family so that the children are not removed from the home and placed into foster care. Uh, the the caseworker maybe identifies this family could use um, beds and bedding because the kids are sleeping on the floor. Um, there's no kitchen table for the family to have meals. Um, you know, may, maybe it's a, a gas bill that needs to be paid or whatever it might be. Um, the, the caseworker enters that as a request into the care portal system and it gets emailed out to all of our local participating churches and the churches have the opportunity to decide, hey, I want to meet that request or, or not. Um, and uh, so far we have served in just two counties in the capital region. Our local churches using the care portal have served over a thousand children uh, in crisis, and a majority of those were to stabilize biological families, to prevent kids from entering foster care, uh, to help uh, a grandparent who took custody of their grandchildren, um, things like that. So that's another part of our ministry where we're, we're really involved in a lot of prevention um, and really working with families in crisis locally. What a valuable support. Yeah. JFO and Orphans No More has been, and especially the care portals. I did not know that they were 
nationwide. So if you're listening out there and if you're a church or a pastor or someone, and if you're interested in learning more about it, we're going to have some information in our program notes on how you can learn more about the care portals and how you can help serve. That is so awesome, Sandra. I love hearing that. So something that I, you know, we were communicating by email before uh, we're having this podcast, which by the way, we are airing this podcast in November, which is National Adoption Awareness Month. So uh, we think it's fitting that Sandra and I talk about what we're talking about today in November, uh, since there's such a need for support and awareness for the orphans, for children that are in foster care, teens that are in foster care, for the adoptive community. So one of the things you emailed me, which I want to talk about before we talk more about FASD, is the effect of COVID-19 on especially foster care. I read that and I really felt like, you know, God put that in my heart to just let's talk about that because I don't even know if people are even realizing the impact of COVID-19 in foster care and foster care systems. Can you tell me a little bit more and enlighten us? I would love to. The impact is broad um, and we're seeing it in lots of different ways. I know in the midst of the shutdown back in the spring, um, our two counties that we're working with in New York, um, you know, they're all along had been entering requests into the system and one of our counties all of a sudden for a month there was no, they weren't entering any requests, but yet at the same time, food pantries, right, were in food banks were being inundated with families needing food assistance because of COVID. Um, so we knew there was great need out there and we didn't understand why there was no, nothing being entered into the system. And finally, you know, we did hear back from the county after we reached out several times and it turned out that, you know, in some instances, child welfare workers were not going out and doing welfare checks on children because of COVID. Because, you know, in the, in the early days, if you remember, you, you know, we were supposed to all be wearing masks. You couldn't get masks. People, churches were making masks. Um, now they're a little bit more available than they were initially, but, um, you know, so caseworkers were not going out. Caseworkers, just like a lot of businesses were shut down, a lot of our county agencies were, people were working from home. They weren't going into the office. So that sort of, that was an impact. It was also an impact with um, one of our other counties that continued. Caseworkers were going out and meeting with children and families in crisis. They were in some cases, putting families in their own cars and taking them to food pantries and taking them to the grocery store to get food, all without any masks because the county workers didn't have access to masks, families didn't have access to masks. And then of course, you know, nationally, and we're really expecting to see more of an impact in this area as time goes on, but with kids out of school like they were from March through June, um, school is often a safe place for kids in crisis where things at home, maybe they're in a, you know, a home with domestic violence, with abuse um, or alcoholism, whatever the case may be, school was the safe place. And um, school administrators, teachers, they're mandated reporters. So if they're suspecting this child isn't getting fed, these kids don't have clean clothing, you know, maybe they're living, the family may be living in the, a car, uh, you know, they're the ones that are mandated. They have to call CPS 
um, and an investigation has to happen to, on the welfare of the child. So when children were not in school for all of those months, eyes were not on them, eyes that would often identify there's a problem here this child may not be safe we need to you know it needs to be investigated so and we were hearing horrific stories nationwide here and there where hospitals were seeing an increase in severe cases of child abuse in you know children coming into the emergency room where in the you know prior to covid it might may not have reached that level of you know abuse because it would have been reported sooner and then of course covid causing such stress on families, on every family, right? All of us were experiencing and still are in many cases, stress because our kids were home, we're now working from home, families are out of work, um, you know, churches weren't meeting, there, you know, everything became very unstable. And that extra stress on families and kids being home also had an impact on um, an increase in child abuse. So, um, you know, it was just, a crisis nationwide, you know, and in my own home with my own kids that, you know, we have our two youngest boys are, are 15 and 17, you know, I was counting. We were home from school seven months and with two boys with FASD, um, you know, the, 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 the abrupt closing of school because of COVID um, really rocked their world, especially my youngest son who has more um, you know, more of an impact of S FASD on him. Um, he does not do well with change. He needs major structure. He needs to know what's going to be happening in his world before it happens so he can feel safe. And, and um, the, so the abrupt change, uh, closure of school, and then in New York, it was like, okay, after two weeks, we'll probably go back. And every two weeks, the governor would change that. Um, and then eventually we learned we wouldn't be going back. So there was a lot of stress in our home. My son had a really hard time. I was watching a mental health crisis unfold in my son. And one day he sat down on the couch next to me, probably back in May and said, my life is half over because of this coronavirus. And I can't go to school and I can't go to my summer camp. And it just, he just had such a hard time and then when school was about to reopen, uh, it got worse actually because we were trying to prepare him for all of the changes. Because in you know it's different in every county in New York actually, but our school district had a lot of changes. Um, they shortened the school day. Uh, they no cafeteria, no gym class. Um, a lot of different things. They have to wear masks. Uh, and my son is in a special education class and has an IEP, so he can actually go all five days, but they are very different days and from what he remembered school to be. So just ramping up, um, we haven't, he hasn't ne needed to be on medication. He's been home from Ukraine 10 years, but two weeks before school started, I actually reached out to our pediatrician, like, I don't know, maybe it's time because he's having such a hard time with anxiety and stress because he's, you know, worried about what school is going to be like. He has a fear of wearing a mask because he thinks it's going to give him coronavirus, which is not a, you know, we, we've been trying to teach him that that's actually not how you get it. But for him, I think the mask just symbolized what was wrong in the world and what, you know, ruined his, you know, what it felt like it had ruined his life and ruined being able to go to school. Um, so 
you know, we just, he got some accommodations in his IEP for frequent mask breaks. Um, and we didn't end up going the route of medication um, for now because we, we felt like, you know, we put some strategies in place to help him and he's back in school now. Um, and, you know, he's, he's doing okay. He's happy to be back, but by the end of the school day, he's having a really hard time um, just regulating himself and, you know, coming home and needing to really decompress because he's had to deal with all of these changes and wearing a mask all day. Um, it's just been really, really hard. So, um, you know, every family, but especially families with um, kids with um, disabilities, um, kids in special education, kids with trauma histories, kids with FASD, especially our kids are, you know, so negatively impact by just the, you know, the, the trauma caused by the shutdown and all of the transitions that we're having to face in our lives and everything is different and it's so unsettling for our kids and so many of our kids nationwide and depends on what state you're in and it depends on what county and what state you're in and what your school district look, looks like. But a lot of children, especially children um, with special needs are losing out on their programs, um, on their special education needs um, it's really having, personally, I believe that, you know, the, the, the fallout from COVID-19 and the shutdown is much more detrimental on our kids than catching the virus, you know, for them ever would be. Um, so it's, it's just been really, really bad for our kids from, you know, kids entering foster care to kids um, with special needs in families kids with trauma histories, it's been, and, and parents are struggling. I'm, and I'm one of them. And if we think about it, thank you. First of all, thank you for sharing that part of your journey and, and what's been happening recently, because I think so many parents need and caregivers need to hear the, the struggle, especially with our kids that have brain-based differences, how the pandemic is just throwing an additional, what I'm calling an additional layer of trauma in yes. the whole trauma. It's like a layer, it's like layer upon layer, you know, so you have the trauma of the prenatal alcohol exposure that was before birth while they were an unborn child in their birth mother's womb. And then you have the trauma of the familial history, whatever it is, you know, whether they were adopted at birth or whether they were in foster care or adopted, you know, when they were older. And then on top of that, the trauma of just adjusting to, you know, the new lifestyle, the new changes. And then with COVID, you haven't the, this extra layer of trauma. And honestly, it is really affecting us horribly, but I'm very concerned about the aftermath because you know mm -hmm. our kids process things much differently and almost always much slower. So we're going to see a lot of negative symptoms and, and a lot of brain-based symptoms, not only during the pandemic, but well after the pandemic. And we know, Sandra, that approximately 70 to 80% of kids in, and I say kids, children, teens, young adults in the foster care system have an FASD. That is a staggering amount. So if we think about how COVID is affecting them and all of their layers of trauma, it's really a call of action 
for us, you know, as a community, as parents and, and what you're doing and what we hope to do. But I, I really hope that this is a call of action for people who are listening and they don't know what to do, but they know they want to help. This is a crisis. Not only is COVID a public health crisis, but FASD, foster care, there are so many crises within this crisis. So your sharing your story really magnifies how our kids are trying to process COVID-19. And, and like you said, you know, because of the brain differences, their, you know, interpretation of what is safe and what is not is different than what ours may be, you know, or what a, a child with, uh, you know, who's developing neurotypically. So let's talk about your work with you know, the care portals and foster care. How many people do you think are aware of the prevalence of FASDs in the systems that you work with? Certainly not enough. I was just trying to do some math when you mentioned 70 to 80% of children in foster care. You know, if nationwide, there is about 400,000 children in foster care. So even if you did 75%, I think that's 300,000 kids who've been most likely exposed to alcohol in the womb. And in many cases, that's cyclical, right? So a lot of kids who are in foster care, their parents had been in foster care. Um, and, and one of the things that led me to realize, wait, I don't think people really know about this like they should. Uh, last year, um, in, prior to COVID, but during the school year, um, I, we had a parent-teacher conference um, with my son, and he's got a wonderful special education teacher. And during the conf uh, during the meeting, she said, "Well, he's really been having a hard time with impulse control." And I'm like, "Yeah," <laughs> because as you you know also, Natalie, that's you know that it impulse control that is classic FASD, right? Yeah, that's and, a primary characteristic. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah. And, and that's when I realized as we were having this conversation with the teacher that she may be a special education teacher. She's been teaching for many, many years. She's not that far away from retirement probably. And just because your child's teacher is a special education teacher does not mean they are educated in FASD or you know any other brain-based disability that kids may have. Um, and I realized they don't, they don't know, and now my job as a parent is to educate every educator that my child has and not to just assume that they have the skills and they understand the disability because, you know, that's, it varies by teacher. So that has been one of my missions is to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm sharing this information and, 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 and resources with the teachers that my kids have because they don't all know. Um, and so, you know, they don't, I, I got to teach, I got invited um, by one of our local counties that we do care portal with um, the MAPS class, which is what, um, forgive me for not knowing what, what the acronym stands for, but it's the training that families receive to become certified foster parents here in New York State. Um, so I got invited to come and present to families that were going through that training um, one evening. And that's a, I talked a lot about, you know, what life is like with a kid with FA, FASD and, um, you know, that 70 to 80% of kids in foster care, you know, so you, 
are, are exposed to alcohol, you need to understand what this is, this is. And I told stories, you know, we have some fun stories with our kids that, you know, now we can laugh at, you know, but at the time they maybe weren't so funny, but, um, you know, just to really give them a glimpse into what life is like and how to advocate for their kid and how, you know, the behaviors aren't, you know, they're not doing these things on purpose. I, I think it was Dr. Purvis. I always love this phrase. It's not that the child won't, it's that they can't. And when you realize, you know, that your child is not behaving in, in any certain way, you know, towards you and, and, and we shouldn't take it personally, um, but they're trying, but just there's some things they just can't do. And one of the, one liberating thing for me also was when I realized, you know, cause my boys' rooms are always a mess and it's not just because they're teenagers. It's because I can't tell them, go clean your room. Like your room is a mess, go clean it because they could go in their room, but that's an overwhelming chore. And when you need things broken down into small steps, when you need one step at a time given to you, when you need a parent to sort of come alongside you and guide you through cleaning your room, um, you know, and I, I'm, you know, I, I'm a grandparent to five kids now. So I, you know, we could be empty nesters um, if we hadn't, you know, stepped out in faith and adopted our kids and we have absolutely no regrets. But, you know, I've been parenting, my oldest biological son is 31. The clean bedroom isn't so important to me anymore. And when we do want to go in and clean it, we walk them through the steps. And it might just be, today we're going to bring out all your dirty clothes. Um, because I realized that, you know, with a brain-based disability, they're not seeing that bedroom the same way I'm seeing that bedroom. And they're not not cleaning it to be disobedient. Um, they, they, they can't just go in and clean a room. It, it, their brain does not work that way. Um, so being aware of those things, don't take it personal, you know, that your kid has a messy room and you've told them 15 times to clean it and they just don't. Um, you know, it, it's bringing that awareness. So educators need to be aware, um, other parents entering, you know, the, the journey to become foster parents need to be made aware. Um, and, and like I know, Natalie, I appreciate how you, you educated your family members once Nick got his diagnosis. And that's huge because, you know, some of my adult children are like, we, we were made to clean our room when we were little and you're letting these kids do, you know, we had to, we had to really bring that training to our adult kids so that they can understand, you know, this is different, you know, and, and it's, it's not that mom and dad have checked out. It's just, we do things differently because our kids have different behaviors and different needs we're making accommodations, you know, whether we realize it or not. I mean, before we had our official diagnosis for our son and before we took the neurobehavioral training and, you know, and learned a lot about brain-based training, we were already making accommodations. For example, we started homeschooling in New York six and a half years ago, and that was well before we had our son's diagnosis. But the reason we were doing it is exactly like you said, because we were meeting him where he was at. And we, unfortunately, where we were living, we could not get good supports in the school district that we were in. You know, and unfortunately, it's district to district. You know, some districts yeah. are great and some districts are, ugh, they don't, you know, they're, they're, they don't have the supports. So homeschooling for us made the best sense. I mean, I was working at the time, but it actually was more feasible for me to stop working and homeschool our son versus 
paying what was close to an Ivy League college tuition for a private school that could accommodate to his needs. So again, I, I am just so thankful for you and, and the work that you've done. One more thing before I ask my next question. So you and I, when we met, it, we were actually in the process of adopting, uh, actually it was just before we started ad adopting our daughter. And prior to that, we had taken that MAPS and that 30 hour foster adoptive course, because this was before our daughter's birth mother reached out to us. So at the time we were in the foster adoption training and I can tell you, and, and maybe you can share your thought on this, FASD was never mentioned. It was never mentioned in my, my training. Was it mentioned in yours? No, and my husband and I went, took the class um, and they talked a lot about trauma and about yes. behavior, yes. Um, how to handle behavior. There was a lot of things, role playing, all kinds of things, but yes. not, I don't ever remember FASD being mentioned. And that's why, you know, last year when I had the opportunity to go in and, and share at a training, I was, I came in, you know, with, I don't know if you're allowed to say this these days, but like guns a blazing yeah. on oh, yeah. FASD because I'm like, these parents are going to encounter this and they, they're going to need to know. And even, you know, the folks from the county, the caseworkers and whatnot that were there, you know, because they were present also with the training, they thanked me afterwards because they see it you know, all the time, but so they were, they were thrilled to, and they I said, been trained in it. They see it, no. but they haven't been trained. In yeah. It. Yeah. And here's a hope here, here is, I like to call um, a, a dose of hope. So in, I believe it was in August of this year, Minnesota, Sarah Messalt, who is the executive director of Proof Alliance, which is the largest FASD nonprofit organization in the United States. Proof Alliance and many people have been working on legislation for two things which were passed and now are acted. So I'm sharing this with you because I would love to see this in every single state. Mm. So number one, in Minnesota, it is now law that foster parent training, anyone who's in foster parent training has, I believe it's an hour of FASD training. So that right there is a huge start. And then number two, all kids that are in foster care in the state of Minnesota are required to have FASD screening. Yes. Because of the prevalence. Those two, that's, that, those are nuggets of hope that I pray the rest of the country can take that. I know every state is different, but, you know, think of all of the kids that can be properly, you know, diagnosed and properly, you know, foster parents and, and anybody in the system can say, okay, this is what we can do. These are the accommodations we can make. This is not a willful behavior, but this is rather a brain-based symptom. Mm -hmm. So I'm sharing that with you because I would love to see that happen in New York. I would love to see that happen here in North Carolina and everywhere. It's like we're talking about, I, I've mentioned, I, I use this phrase often in this series, but it's like there's a pebble in the water and it's a pebble of hope and then it has a ripple effect. You know, and I really pray and hope that that pebble in, in the water in Minnesota, those two wonderful legislation actions can have a ripple effect in the country. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great? That would be wonderful. <laughs> uh, so, so let's talk about in the meantime, while we, while we're, you know, we're 
hoping to get that legislation passed and while we're you know taking steps and people are taking steps how can the community and those involved especially what you're talking about the care portals and the churches how can we be better educated about FASD? You're obviously doing grassroots things. We're obviously, you know, through a podcast and through the things that we're doing, you know, I know so many parent advocates. What can we do to, to share with those involved that FASD is a brain-based diagnosis? And like you said, it's not that they won't, but they can't. I think we just need to keep having conversations like this for starters. Um, you know, I, I've been listening to podcasts and as a parent, I'm always trying to educate myself, you know, and, and, and I, with FASD and other brain-based disabilities, every stage of development, you know, different things can start happening. So now I have teenage boys. Um, and so I'm like, you know, I hit those times where, okay, we need some extra help. This is intense. COVID was, you know, has been a season like that. It's, it's affected everything and, and, and worsened so many things. Um, so just having these conversations, listening to podcasts, sharing this information with everybody we come in contact with, our kids, school teachers, um, our family members, just continuing to talk about it and get it out there. And then when God sh gives you an opportunity to be able to, you know, he'll open the doors, right? He's brought us this far. He's opened the doors to get us to where we are right now. Um, but, you know, I'm sure Sarah with Proof Alliance in Minnesota, you know, as, as, you know, God may lead things in that direction in your state, wherever you are, he'll, you know, you'll just happen to have the right conversation with the right person, right? So I think it's just continuing to have our voices heard. We need to be a voice for the voiceless and have those conversations and get it out there and, you know, let our voices be heard. I know with, with autism, it's like everybody's heard of autism. Everybody's seen the bumper sticker, you know, with, with, with autism. Um, you know, it's got that Autism Awareness Month. We know that September was FASD Awareness Month. Everybody kind of has heard of autism. So it's sort of like this, you know, everybody just knows about it. Hardly anybody knows about FASD. Um, so we just need to keep getting our voices heard out there and talk to whoever God can connect you with, who he can, he can connect us with anybody, right? But, you know, be willing to have those conversations and educate those around us. Um, and, and we can make a difference. Amen. I, I love hearing that. And again, our stories, your story, my story, our stories were meant to be shared. And by sharing our stories and by talking and by being that, you know, having that megaphone, you know, that virtual megaphone and saying, this is what's happening. This is what, you know, FASD is. This is what's happening in foster care. This is what's happening in the adoptive communities. This is just what's happening, period. A, a recent study in 2018 by Dr. Philip May, one in 20 children are estimated to have an FASD is more than you know, so many other developmental disabilities. And we know that FASD, exposure to prenatal alcohol, is the leading cause of developmental disabilities in the US, you know, in Canada. However, it's not spoken about. And I think one of the things that you and I have talked about is there is such a stigma that goes mm -hmm. with FASD. And we need to stop that. 
because as parents of these children who God blessed to us, they have amazing gifts. You Mm. know, your, your, your boy's gifts and, and you know, your kid's gifts. I know my kid's gifts. I'm so thankful that, and I'm going to tell you because your, your boys are younger than Nick. The teen years are tough, my friend. (laughs) They are tough because hormones exacerbates a lot of things in, in FASD. However, have faith and have hope. You know, we're still in the trenches, but we're, we're coming like out of that part of the trenches. You know, I can honestly say that our son needed more supports in his teens than he did when he was little, honestly. So with that in mind, I think we need to focus on our children's strengths and have society. And I had this in a previous conversation with another guest, have all of us see our children the way God sees them. Yes. You know, they have gifts. They have amazing gifts. I am podcasting and I've said this a million times. I am podcasting on the desk that my son made for us last Christmas. Mm. That is to me is such a symbol of the gifts that God has given him and that we should focus on these gifts. And yes, we need to accommodate the needs. Mm -hmm. We need to meet them where they're at developmentally. And also remember, developmentally, our kids, teens, young adults that have an FASD or a brain-based diagnosis, they are developmentally younger than their chronological age. Yeah. And I know, I'm sure you've seen this in, in your guys too, you know, as yeah. I've seen it in, in our son. So we need to, in the areas that they have, they need that support, give it to them. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if you're not able to give it to them, find people. You, you have done such an amazing job in, in just finding supports and connecting with other people. But we need to end this stigma, you know? Yes. This is something that, is so prevalent. This is a brain-based diagnosis that's so Mm -hmm. prevalent. And, you know, we would accommodate somebody that has a visual impairment. We would accommodate somebody that has a mobility impairment. Mm -hmm. Why are we not accommodating children, teens, adults that have a brain-based diagnosis? We need to. We need to. So I am just so thankful that we're having this conversation. Let's just quickly talk about how, are there any other ways you think that, you know, JFO, the care portals, that we can work together with the FASD community, trainers, you know, advocates, anything like that, so that we can better support and serve the children and the teens and the young adults that you serve? I think there should be certainly more resources out there for our churches, for um, I mean, families, like we've just said that families who go through the foster parent training, they're not currently getting the training that they need and they're bringing these children into their homes. Um, and then, you know, then with, with churches who are having children come in, you know, of course, COVID has sort of changed how church works, right? But prior to COVID, you know, these children are in our Sunday school classes and our youth groups and our church services. And, you know, a lot of times, it's, it's not been a positive experience for our kids. Um, if they have, you know, sensory issues or whatever, and the music is loud or the service is long, or, you know, a lot of them have that um, dismaturity where they appear, you know, they are emotionally younger than they are chronologically. And um, that awareness, and I know, um, 
I believe it is Ryan and Kayla North. They, um, they host the um, Empowered Parent podcast. Um, so their audience is primarily foster and adoptive parents, and they do a lot of trauma training. They actually did our Empowered to Connect parent training when Wayne and I became um, trainers, but they're no longer with um, Empowered to Connect, but their, their, um, their website is... Um, Oh my goodness, I'm going to say it wrong probably because I wasn't planning on saying it, but it's um, One Big Happy Home, I believe it is. But it's Ryan and Kayla North, and they developed a um, program to bring to churches to, for just like what I just mentioned, Sunday school teachers, youth group leaders, anybody within the church that's working with the children in the church, it's to train them on how to um, you know, really manage kids in your, you know, within the church that have trauma histories. And for, you know, that really a lot of those kids have FASD, not every one of them, a lot, but, but we know the overlap, right? We just said 70 to 80% of the children in foster care have been exposed to alcohol in the womb. So pretty much if you have a foster or adopted child in your congregation, it's highly likely FASD, um, is is there right? So to be able to bring training, that valuable training to um, church ministry staff, children's ministry staff, youth group leaders, um, it would be something that should be brought. You know, it should be an annual training, um, and it's just things like that are just starting to be developed and available to churches. And now with COVID, almost everything is virtual, right? So the training could be offered. Um, uh, virtually, but it's important training because they're not, you know, so many Christians, you know, because we're doing our job, right, you know, rallying the church, um, and there's so many Christian, you know, nonprofits out there um, that advocate for adoption and foster care um, nationwide that so many more Christians are fostering and are adopting, so our churches have more and more children um, in crisis in within their congregation. So we need to have that training to understand, you know, parents need to know how to parent and caregivers and church ministry leaders also need to know how to give care and to help these kids because they're going to be a part. We're all, you're all going to encounter them. We, and we need to know, you know, how to relate to them and understand that this kid is not just being disruptive in youth group, but the loud music and the balls flying every place may very well you know, they are going to have a hard time managing. So just trying to get that education out there everywhere um, is important. And I will share that contact information and that information that you just said, Sandra, in our program notes and also in our notes on our website so you can reach out. Yes. And you know what? As someone whose son actually, you know, church with uh, sensory, especially with worship music, we we always had my husband and I always had to divide and con conquer, mm -hmm. and this was pre-COVID. My husband and our daughter would go first, you know, while the worship music was playing, so that she could go down to Sunday school, and my son and I would have to go after worship music yeah. because it was so, like you said, so loud, so bright, and it's really important for churches to know this and to know they're not behaviors, they're symptoms and yeah. how to like, like you're saying, how to um, accommodate to these symptoms. So we will share that information along with Sandra's information. 
I hate to end this conversation, <laughs> but we need to end our lovely, lovely conversation. And Sandra, I'm going to have you back on again. I oh, I'd love to. I am because I am just, I, I miss you. And once COVID is over, I, I pray that we can see each other again. What is your final, what I like to call hope takeaway that you can share? Well, for families, I, I believe that um, stay the course, you know, God set your child into your family. And he wrote, you know, Psalm 139, um, I think it's verse 16, where it says that, you know, God wrote all the days of our life down in a book before a single moment has passed. So he wrote our story and he wrote our kids' story. And then, you know, he decided to intersect our stories and we're in each other's books, right? So God put the children in your family that he wanted there. And if they have a brain-based disability, if they have FASD, you're their champion advocate. And and I, you know, and it was when we got the diagnosis and we finally got the education and we realized, okay, this is what's going on. It's not us parents versus those kids. We are on the same team and we are cheering our kids on and we're providing them with every possible opportunity and resource and training for success because we want them to be successful in life. We want to help them navigate, right? So that's what we have to do as parents. Um, because it's, you know, it's not a mistake that your kids are in your home. God placed them there for a reason, whether they're biological, adopted, um, or they came through foster care, kinship care, however, um, but it's our job as their advocates, as their champions to advocate for them, to get the proper training, to go after every resource, um, and you can do it because God is faithful. He, you know, he will equip you for everything you need to, to meet the needs of your children. And, and just like podcasts, right? I find that, you know, when I find, you know, I found your podcast and well, I knew about you because I had interviewed you on mine, but then you started doing podcasting and there's another podcast out there when there's, you know, when you can get that encouragement for yourself to stay the course and you hear the stories of other people on this journey that gives all of us hope because we know that we're not alone in the trenches um, we're not isolated we can reach out we can learn more so continue to stay the course continue to advocate for your kids continue to learn and continue to champion them because god put them in your family and he's you know equipping you with everything you need to be able to do this and you just said the title for this episode we're not alone <gasps> In so many ways, in so many ways, we're not alone on this journey. And that is hope right there. Yeah. Sandra Fleck, thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, thank you, Natalie. I loved it. Can't wait to talk to you again. Sandra, can you give us your contact information on where to find you and, and how to find uh, the JFO website? Sure. So my website is justicefororphansny.org. Uh, and there's lots of resources there. You can connect with me there, but I'll also give you, I'll give, I don't mind giving out my email if you want to contact me directly. It's my name, Sandra Flack, F as in Frank, L-A-C-H, and then the letters J-F-O, which stand for Justice for Orphans, at gmail.com. So Sandra Flack, J-F-O, at gmail.com. And I'm on Facebook and Instagram as well. And again, we will be posting Sandra's information in our 
podcast notes and also on our website, which is FASDHope.com. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Vecchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com. Or please leave us a five-star rating and follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us next week. And remember, to be informed, take care, and always have hope.